Hello, and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller. The following is part two of a three-part episode on the Ethiopian Empire. So, if you would like to hear the first part of the story, uh, simply take a look at the last episode, Heirs to the Lost Ark, Part 1. That said, on with Heirs to the Lost Ark, Part 2. We left off last time with the great Emperor Amdaseon, who restored the Ethiopian Empire in the 1300s. We talked about his conquests, how he regained that essential territory along the Red Sea coast, and how he conquered south into the Great Rift Valley. And with his conquests done by the year 1332, Amdaseon will spend the last 12 years of his reign in peace. This is one of those times in history when nothing happens and Really, it's a good thing because the country is flourishing. And when Amdaseon does pass in the year 1344, he is succeeded by his son, a man named Noiacrestos. Uh, Noiacrestos is middle-aged. He is at least old enough to have campaigned with his father back when they were at war, so at least 12 years prior, if not before. And something that he has inherited from his father is a strong sense of religion. He is devoutly orthodox. And when the Ottoman sultan imprisons the patriarch of Alexandria, that's the head bishop of Egypt, a very important figure in the orthodox tradition, when the Ottoman sultan imprisons that man, Crestos leads an army to the border of the Ottoman Empire and threatens to go to war. The Ottomans free the patriarch, who ends up coming to the border and personally asking Crestos to turn back and not to go to war. And within his country, Crestos oversees the rebuilding of many churches that were destroyed under Muslim rule. This is particularly the case in that area along the Red Sea coast that uh, had recently been reconquered. And Crestos's successors continue to slowly expand Ethiopia's borders. But without allies, they have to be very careful. Remember, again, this is a time when countries and societies around the world are, you know, large part divided based on religion, and Ethiopia is surrounded by Muslim states. Well, several decades into this period of rebuilding in Ethiopia, an emperor named Zara Yaqob decides that he's going to do something about this isolated situation. And what he does is sends a mission to Rome to ask the Pope for help. In and of itself, this is not terribly unusual. We saw in the last episode how a previous emperor sent a similar mission to the kings and queens of the Spains. We also saw that ultimately nothing came of that mission, and Ethiopia remained isolated. Well, 
What happens this time is that the Ethiopian emissaries are welcomed with open arms, and the papal dignitaries keep referring to Tsar Jacob as Prester John. The ambassadors, the Ethiopian ambassadors, are confused because they've never heard of Prester John. They certainly don't work for anybody named Prester John. Who is this guy? Well, remember that at this time, we're not too far removed from the Crusades. Right? We're less than 200 years after the Crusades. And during the Crusades, there had been a legend in Europe of a figure named Prester John. This person supposedly ruled over a great Christian empire on the far side of the Muslim Caliphate. And according to the stories, one day Prester John would attack the Muslim powers from the east, even as the Crusaders were battling them in the West, and Christianity would conquer. Well, Prester John, in many historical interpretations, is thought to be a misunderstanding uh, or misremembering of the Empire of Ethiopia. And in this case, right in the case of Zara Jacob's emissaries, we see actual evidence that here was the Pope in 1441 thinking that he had finally hooked up with this Prester John guy. Unfortunately, much like the Spanish mission of a couple of centuries ago, Zara Jacob's mission to the Pope achieves nothing substantial. Ethiopia remains isolated from the rest of the Christian world. Even so, Zara Jacob remains a staunch defender of Christianity in other lands outside of Ethiopia. And in one particular story, in a parallel to Amdaseon, after the Ottoman Sultan burns down some Christian churches, uh, Zara Jacob threatens to divert or dam up the Nile. Uh, this doesn't immediately work, but the Sultan does ease up on the persecutions. And after Zara Jacob's death under his successors, the Ethiopian Empire will continue to prosper. This is a long period of relative stability and peace. Uh, not to say there aren't setbacks. Uh, throughout this time period, the Ottomans keep backing uh, various small Muslim powers around Ethiopia to uh, start uh, small conflicts and keep the Ethiopians on their back foot, but uh, the Ethiopians are pretty successful at beating back all of these attacks. And in part, this is due to the fact that they eventually start getting help. This is the age of exploration. And in the United States here, you know, my friends and I think of the age of exploration, we mostly think about the Spanish. Well, because it was a Spanish explorer, or at least a Spanish-funded explorer, who quote-unquote discovered the Americas. Well, remember that the entire reason the Spanish were pursuing this course across the Atlantic was to try and find a route to China. Also to India and the Indies, as they called the, the Spice Islands, uh, in the Indian Ocean, uh, 
these were very lucrative uh, trading areas, and because the Ottomans controlled both the Persian Gulf and the Red Sea, right, both routes to the Mediterranean, uh, they were able to effectively monopolize global trade. Well, if you were a European power who could find a way to get to India or China or the Spice Islands without going through the Ottoman Empire, well, you could get very rich. And even as the Spanish were trying to go around the globe, the Portuguese were exploring their way around the coast of Africa. And the Portuguese were very methodical. See, the advantage of going around Africa was that you didn't have to do all of your exploring at once. Right? Each year you could go a few more miles down the coast and set up a small trading depot, and then, you know, the next year your ships could progress a little bit further. And uh, in the year 1490, Portugal eventually worked their way all the way around Africa and established a formal embassy in Ethiopia. Interestingly enough, the Portuguese ambassador who first meets with the Ethiopians, uh, first believes that he has found the land of Prester John. This confusion is cleared up. And the Portuguese were not just there to establish an embassy. They were there to trade. And these being the religious times that they were, they were also willing to back up another Christian power. And just to use one example, in the year 1520, uh, the Portuguese would actually send a fleet to help the Ethiopians win a battle against a Muslim sultanate in the Red Sea. Well, Ethiopia was going to need this help, and they were going to need it badly. See, in the year 1529, uh, the Adal Sultanate would invade. Now, the Adal Sultanate was a country located in the Horn of Africa, roughly modern-day Somalia. So you're talking uh, to the southeast of Ethiopia, and over the next 11 years, uh, the Adal Sultanate just slowly rolls the Ethiopians back up to their mountain homeland. And by the year 1540, the emperor has been killed, his son is held captive, and the empress is besieged. And the rest of the remaining Ethiopian forces are holed up in the mountains. And command would be left to a young man named Gelodewos, the younger brother of the slain emperor's imprisoned son. And Gelodewos is able to successfully lead a guerrilla war for three years. Right? From 1540 to 1543, the Ethiopians stop losing ground, but they cannot actually face the Adal Sultanate in battle. Well, in 1543, the Portuguese would finally step in to help. A fleet would arrive and along with that fleet were 400 musketeers. These musketeers would disembark, 
and uh, meet the Adal Sultanate's army nearby along the coast. And while the Portuguese commander himself would be slain in the battle, the Portuguese troops were victorious, and uh, Ethiopia ends up having its borders restored to where they were back in 1523 before this war started. But this would not last for long. See, the Portuguese involvement had some unintended consequences. Up until now, the Ottoman Empire has been content to harass the Ethiopians, right? We haven't seen them go to war. We've seen them fund a bunch of smaller wars, but they haven't actually gotten their hands dirty. Now the situation has changed, though. Right? Up until now, the Ottomans have always had the superior military. Ethiopia has not been a threat to them. And all of a sudden, now Ethiopia is a gunpowder-armed country. Right? That's like the 16th century version of being in the group of countries that has nuclear weapons. Well, the Ottomans can't have that. Right? Especially not on their southern border. They already have trouble on their northern border. They can't have another gunpowder-armed rival down south. So the Ottomans invade, and Gelidewos is not able to fight them off, and by 1559, the Ottomans have taken all of the Eritrean coast. And the Portuguese are not able to help. Right? They might have been able to help beat back the Adol Sultanate, but the Ottoman Empire is a major, major power and Portugal is in no way ready to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with them, especially halfway across the world. This once again puts Ethiopia in the position of being landlocked. They have been crippled. The Ottomans then make peace, and Ethiopia is badly cut off. Dignitaries, legitimate uh, ambassadors visiting from Europe, for instance, have to travel in secret through Ottoman territory. And there is a complete ban on importing any kind of gunpowder weapons to Ethiopia. The Ethiopians are able to smuggle some in through Ottoman territory, but it's very difficult. Right, as we've seen a few times in our story already, the fortunes of Ethiopia wax and wane along with her access to the sea. And during this particular period of poverty and isolation, Ethiopia also has to manage some massive internal migrations. The Oromo people, uh, an ethnic group from the southern plains uh, south of uh, Ethiopia, uh, migrate north into Ethiopia. Uh, this is a large ethnic group. Uh, it's mostly Muslim. It's actually the largest ethnic group of uh, Ethiopians today. Something like 35% of the country are of Oromo descent. Uh, and as you can imagine from the fact that they're such a large part of the country today, the Oromo people would ultimately be integrated uh, into Ethiopian society and culture, but as is often the case, this takes time. It takes time for the country to digest these new people. Uh, 
so Ethiopia turns inwards. But just because she's turned inwards does not mean there's nothing going on. And one important thing that happens during this time period is that the emperor attempts to make the country Catholic. You see, Portuguese Jesuit missionaries had now been visiting for centuries. Uh, there was a sizable Roman Catholic minority in the country by this point, and in the year 1622, the Emperor Susenos formally accepts Catholicism as his faith. And his intent is to unify the Ethiopian Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches. It's not quite clear whether he does this for religious reasons or for diplomatic ones, right? Remember, Ethiopia needs help. There's only one Ethiopian Orthodox country in the world. There's a whole lot of Catholic countries, and maybe Emperor Susenios just wants to join that club. But Latinization proves to be very unpopular with the Ethiopian people. There are a number of small rebellions over the next decade, and in 1632, when Susenios dies, uh, his son Basilide reverses uh, the reunification. And he goes further. He either executes or expels all Jesuit missionaries. And there will be no more Catholic missionaries, or Protestant ones for that matter, in Ethiopia until the 1800s. Latinization was so unpopular that even today, the Ethiopian Catholic Church uses its own separate rite. Right? If you walk into an Ethiopian Catholic Mass, it is not what you would see if you walked into your local Roman Catholic Church. And that is how deep these ancient Ethiopian religious traditions run. In 1635, just three years later, Basilide founds a capital city, the city of Gondar, near Lake Tana, right in the Ethiopian heartland. And the presence of a capital city allows interior trade to grow. Right? Most previous emperors have been nomadic. Right? They've set up temporary capitals throughout the country as needed. Basilide, by founding a capital city, has created this sort of permanent infrastructure uh, that facilitates things like markets, for instance. And under Basilide's leadership, Ethiopia eventually regains her land in Eritrea, that essential land on the Red Sea coast. Now, you might think at this point that Ethiopia would enter another period of prosperity, but there were some internal divisions that needed to be worked out at this point. Under Basilide's heir, uh, Emperor Johannes I, there was a large Oromo rebellion. Now, Johannes puts that down successfully, but it does take a toll on the state and the treasury. And this more or less repeats itself ad nauseum for the next century or so. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time rehashing a series of failed rebellions. But in 1769, 
and another century later, the division in Ethiopia comes to a head. See, despite Basilides' founding of a capital, Ethiopian culture is still nomadic. Most subsequent emperors have been nomadic, and the local lords don't have the same kinds of close ties to the uh, king that you might expect. And many of them are resentful at paying taxes, and there is a rebellion under the leadership of a nobleman named Yamariam Barioff. Baryov fights a long campaign, and it is a losing campaign, and he is ultimately captured, along with 11 other rebel leaders. Baryov is brought to the emperor's court, where he pleads with Emperor Eoyas for mercy, and in front of all of his nobles, the emperor cuts Baryov's throat instead. This does not have the intended effect. Uh, what happens is all the nobles who had been loyal to the emperor are horrified and release the other captives, and Eoyas is now facing a larger, widespread rebellion, and within a year he is deposed and executed. And this would kick off a long period of turmoil, in Ethiopia, right? We just had a hundred years of, you know, constant low-level rebellions. Well, now we're starting a even worse period, and this 86-year period would be called the Era of the Princes. During this time, Ethiopia is divided into a number of small princedoms. There are a series of puppet kings who, you know, nominally rule the whole kingdom, but not really, because there are all of these princedoms. The kings are just sort of there to maintain the facade of the uh, legitimacy of the Solomonic line. Uh, and the nobles, these princes, are in effect ruling the country. But this situation could only go on as long as the emperors remained weak. And with the rise of a strong emperor, Ethiopia would not only be fully united, but would join the modern world. This new emperor began his life as a young man named Kasa Hialu. He was born sometime around the year 1818, we can't even say that for sure, uh, and Kasa Hialu is a warlord and a famous bandit. More importantly, he is also one of the heirs to the Solomonic line. Now, Kasa didn't start out as a bandit. He actually grew up in a monastery, which in these times means he's an educated man. He takes the baptismal name Tewodros, which is the Ethiopian form of Theodore, because of an ancient prophecy. This prophecy says that a king named Theodore will drive the Muslims out of all Christian lands and restore Jerusalem to its ancient glory. So he sort of has these modern-day crusader ambitions, almost. Then something else happens to make him even more determined. He witnesses the burning of his monastery by a rebellious duke. 
and the duke slaughters many of the children from the monastery in revenge because their parents had been on the other side. Well, Tawodros was one of the lucky ones who escaped. And this drives him to become a warlord, serving under his uncle. By his mid-twenties, Tewodros has had several battlefield successes. He has reclaimed his father's former princedom in Dembia. This is the region right around Lake Tana. So, remember, there is officially an emperor, but there are also princes under the emperor. Well, now Tewodros is officially the prince of Dembia. Well, the emperor, a man named Ras Ali, sees that Tawodros poses a threat and decides to form a family alliance. He convinces Tawodros to marry his granddaughter, a young woman named Tawabek Ali. And the two are indeed married, and Tawodros then spends the next several years campaigning against the Arabs in the north. And for a short while, it looks as if Ras Ali has been successful. It looks as if he has neutralized his potential rival to Wodros and made him into an ally. But in the year 1852, for reasons that aren't entirely clear, Tawodros rebels against Ras Ali. He defeats Ras Ali in battle, but... The battle is not decisive. The two sides remain evenly matched, and neither man really wants to go to war, at least not against a fellow Ethiopian. So, in February of 1854, nearly two years later, Tawodros agrees to mediation. Unfortunately, the mediator is the Abuna, or chief bishop, of the Ethiopian church, and this Abuna is opposed to Tawodros. Well, Tawodros just one-ups the Abuna and employs his own Abuna, who then makes him the emperor. And believe it or not, this works. Tawodros is crowned emperor, and everyone just kind of accepts it. At least for the time being, it is a fait accompli. And this may have been in part because Tawodros is such an impressive individual. Tawodros was good friends with the British consul, a man named Walter Plowden. And here's how Plowden describes Tawodros at the time of his coronation. He says, quote, the King Theodorus is young in years, vigorous in all manly exercises, of a striking countenance, peculiarly polite and engaging when pleased, and mostly displaying great tact and delicacy. He is persuaded that he is destined to restore the glories of the Ethiopian Empire and to achieve great conquests. Of untiring energy, both mental and bodily, his personal and moral daring is boundless. When aroused, his wrath is terrible, and all tremble, but at all moments he possesses perfect self-control. Indefatigable in business, he takes little repose night or day. His ideas and language are clear and precise. Hesitation is not known to him, and he has no counselors or go-between. 
He is fond of splendor and received in state even on a campaign. He is unsparing in punishment, necessary in a wilderness as Abyssinia at that time. He salutes his meanest poor subjects with courtesy, is sincerely, though often mistakenly, religious, and will acknowledge a fault committed to his poorest follower in a moment of compassion with sincerity and grace. He is generous to excess and free from all cupidity, regarding nothing with pleasure or desire but munitions of war for his soldiers. He has exercised the utmost clemency towards the vanquished, treating them more like friends than enemies. His faith is signal, without Christ I am nothing. Unquote. And besides just being an imposing individual, uh, Tuodros also consolidates power by moving his capital. You see, over the past couple hundred years, Ethiopian territory has shifted somewhat to the south. So Gundar, that area around Lake Tana, that used to be right in the center of the country, is now towards the north. So Tawodro sets up a new capital called Magdala. And there, in the new center area of Ethiopia... He not only builds a capital, but he builds a prison and a fortress. And in that prison, he locks up his political rivals. Now, he remains popular with the people in large part for religious reasons. He is, as we've already heard from Walter Plowden, a fairly religious fellow, uh, just to use one example of something he does during this time, uh, Tawodros actually buys Christian slaves from uh, the surrounding uh, Muslim powers, and after purchasing those Christians, he frees them. Uh, he's essentially buying their freedom. But he soon loses his shine. In 1858, his wife Tawabek dies and his associates say that his demeanor changes. Now, why this happens is a little bit unclear. Uh, there's some dispute over whether there was mental illness involved or whether Tawodros uh, had descended into alcoholism. That's what we hear from an American journalist named H.M. Alden, who we'll be referring to later in this story. And we're not talking about just a small change in demeanor here. In one case, a good friend of Tawodros is murdered, a British traveler named John Bell. And in revenge, Tawodros has 500 prisoners executed. Shortly thereafter, he ups the ante by executing 7,000 more prisoners after winning a battle over a rebel warlord. Another incident, Tawodros calls all of his nobles together to make an announcement. He then reveals that he has made a bargain with God. See, in this deal, God will not send his angels down to invade Earth and in return Tawodros will generously not invade heaven with his army. He then proceeds to throw a feast to celebrate this treaty. Well, whether he's crazy or drunk, Tawodros still has to deal with events in the real world, 
and he is facing increasing Ottoman pressure from the north. So he sends a letter to Queen Victoria asking for skilled workers to train the Ethiopians to make rifles. Reasonable enough, he appeals to Christian unity against the Ottomans. And then in this same letter, Tuodros also proposes a formal alliance and a marriage to Queen Victoria. Now, the letter itself is never actually delivered. See, instead it's sent to the British Raj and it's filed away and forgotten. For one thing, Britain simply cannot afford a war with the Ottomans. The reasons for this are complicated. Uh, even if they wanted to go to war with the Ottomans, they need cotton from Egypt and Sudan. The U.S. Civil War is on, and it would not be politically tenable for Great Britain to be buying American cotton from the U.S. South, uh, from the Confederate States of America uh, during the Civil War. Uh, ergo, they really couldn't go to war with the Ottoman Empire or even really agitate them to the point where the cotton trade would be threatened. So, as unrealistic as Tawodros' proposal may have been, when the British ambassador returns with no response, uh, Tawodros has him imprisoned. And then when the ambassador's papers are searched, Tawodros finds derogatory remarks about himself. At one point, the ambassador had referred to him in writing as a, quote, wild beast, unquote. In reprisal for this, Tawodros imprisons every British subject in Ethiopia. At this point, Tawodros has gone from needing British help to combat the Ottomans, to agitating Great Britain to the point where they have to respond. And the British send an expeditionary force under Sir Robert Napier, called the Napier Expedition. This is also called the Abyssinia Expedition, because the British at this time called Ethiopia Abyssinia, but whatever you call it, the British Expeditionary Force lands in January of 1868 with 13,000 men. Most of these men are coming from India. Remember, India is part of the British Empire at this time. Uh, it makes a lot more sense to bring troops from there than to sail them all the way around from England. And these troops are armed with the latest breech-loading rifles. Those are modern rifles that load from the back and not from the front. The Ethiopians have cannons, but their infantry are armed mostly with spears. This puts them at a distinct disadvantage. The British have also brought with them a lot of the infrastructure they need to move inland. They have set up a makeshift port on the Ethiopian coast with a dock and a lighthouse, and they have sent advance parties ahead inland to build a road through the mountains. And to get to those mountains, they've brought 20 miles of railway line to actually move their supplies. They've really, really planned this out. And good planning 
is required because they're going to have to march over 400 miles inland through hostile territory. I would also be remiss at this point if I did not mention that there were a handful of rebellions going on in Ethiopia at this time as well, and that the British actually had some help from a particular rebel named Kasa, but we'll talk about him later. And yes, this is a different Kasa than Tawodros. Even with help, this was quite the undertaking. Here is how American journalist H.M. Alden describes the British effort in an article written for Harper's Bazaar in 1868. He says, quote, The British journals compare this march of General Napier to that of General Sherman from Atlanta to the sea. We are all apt, says the spectator, that's a British journal, to think Sherman's march into space a rather wonderful thing. Plant three Alleghenies straight across his path, destroy all roads, dry up most springs, change his compact army of educated soldiers into a collection of men of three colors, five creeds, and four languages, strip the country till every loaf has to be carried from his base, falsify all his maps, and make his cavalry useless as pioneers, and Sherman will have the work to do which Sir Robert Napier has so far successfully accomplished. But then... It must be remembered that Sherman's march was through the enemy's country in its entire route, while that of Sir Robert Napier, until he came to the fortress of Magdala, was not only through a region occupied by the enemies of Theodore, that's Tawodros, but was entirely dependent for its success upon that fact. The same expedition, undertaken with ten times the force, would in 1860 have terminated in disaster. Casa, the king of Tigre, was especially the friend of the invaders. Unquote. Well, this whole rebellion situation, even as it helps the British, hinders Tawodros. See, he himself is not at Magdala when the British land, so he has to get there. Uh, and he enacts a scorched-earth policy to delay the British. It essentially burns all the fields in his path. If... Anything of use can't be carried away, it's destroyed. He's trying to deny the British supplies. But this alienates many of his own people. I mean, he's burning their crops. He's you know, killing their livestock. What are they supposed to do after the army has moved on and they have no food? Several tribes are now in rebellion, and he has trouble moving all of his artillery in particular. Tawodros takes great pride in his artillery. He has this giant mortar that he's commissioned called the Sevastopol, and he expends a great deal of effort getting his troops to try and pull this mortar up into the fortress of Magdala, and ultimately it cannot be done. Uh, the mortar remains half buried in the hillside to this day. In another incident, as Tawodros's army is making their way towards Magdala, uh, he is passing through a village and asks why they only acknowledge him as king when they have seen his army. In other words, why are they not flying the royal colors? Uh, and the village leaders say that they were afraid of rebels. Why would we fly anyone's colors in these troublesome times? Uh, and Tawodros, in reprisal, has the entire town slaughtered and plundered. And he 
engages in this type of behavior repeatedly to the point where it denudes his own army. Here's what Alden goes on to say in his piece in Harper's Bazaar, quote, Even as late as 1863, King Theodore's army had numbered 150,000 men. When General Napier came, it had dwindled down to a handful, and it was doubted whether 5,000 men could be mustered under the old banner. By Theodore's own fault, his kingdom had become a shadow. His whole character had changed, and he was a scourge to the land which he had once believed it was his mission to redeem. He instilled into his soldiers the love of rapine and plunder. Whole provinces were desolated at his whim. The confidence of the people was lost, and the standard of rebellion was again raised, at first in Shoah and the Gallus country, then in Tigre, until from the outskirts of the empire menacing hosts advanced upon the center from every direction. Numerous were the defections in the king's own army, and to these were added the ravages of the smallpox, cholera, and famine. Whatever may have been the sufferings of the European captives, they were insignificant as compared with the horrible tortures inflicted by Theodore upon such of his enemies as came into his hands. As the situation of the king became more desperate, he became more suspicious, and by his galling tyranny alienated from his most trusty friends. The most frightful stories are related of this monster's cruelties, of women whipped to death, of chiefs chopped in pieces, of whole communities driven into their dwellings and there burned to death. Unquote. At the end of this march of terror, Tawodros ultimately beats the British to Magdala by two days, and he has a little bit of time to set up his defenses. Now, on April 10th, 1868, the British arrive, and Napier opts to launch a frontal assault under artillery fire. He is not expecting Tawodros to attack, so he figures the longer he sits outside the fortress, the worse his situation is going to get. He's just going to launch a frontal assault straight away. But what happens is uh, that Tawodros has actually positioned spearmen off to the sides in hiding, and uh, these spearmen then charge in on the British who are attempting to assault the fort. And... They are ultimately beaten back by the British rifle fire, and also by targeted British artillery fire. And meanwhile, uh, while this fighting has been going on on the flanks, advanced elements have already gotten right up to the fort and knocked out the Ethiopian artillery that is located just outside the city. As we can see here, this fight is fairly one-sided. This army to Wodros's fielding is not just denuded, but it's a far cry from earlier Ethiopian armies that had generally done a pretty good job of keeping up with technology. The next day, with all the Ethiopian artillery destroyed and their spearmen driven off, uh, Napier demands unconditional surrender. Tawodros refuses, but he does release all of the British hostages over the next two days. He releases the Ethiopian hostages as well, but he cuts off their hands and feet and 
froze their dead bodies off the walls. And as soon as the last British hostage was released, Napier began a British artillery bombardment and launched an assault on April the 13th. And as the British troops stormed the citadel, Tawodros II commits suicide. Ironically, he shoots himself with a pistol that was gifted to him by Queen Victoria. And we have this description from a British soldier who was present. He says, quote, Climbing a narrow rock stairway, we advanced quickly towards a second gate, through which we passed without meeting resistance. About a hundred paces beyond it lay the half-naked body of the emperor himself, who had taken his own life with a pistol shot. A strange smile was on the remarkably young and attractive-looking face. Unquote. And as compensation for Tawodros' acts, the British loot the royal treasury, burn several churches, and plunder several ancient Ethiopian artifacts that can now be found in the British Museum. And last but not least, Tawodros' wife and children, he did remarry, his wife and children are taken into British custody, and both his wife and his oldest son are dead within a year. The new emperor would be a distant relative named Teclegiorgius. But Teclegiorgius could not unite the country, and a civil war eventually breaks out. By now it is 1871. The European countries are starting to found colonies in Africa, and Ethiopia is in chaos. And ultimately, it will fall to the next emperor, a man named Johannes IV, to save the empire from destruction. Well, we've actually met Johannes before. See, he wasn't named Johannes when we met him. Remember the warlord who helped Sir Robert Napier? King Kassa? of Tigre? Well, that is the man who would ultimately become Emperor Johannes IV, but Casamirca was not always a king or even a warlord. He was born the youngest of three sons in a distant branch of the Solomonic family. There is so little known about his early life that we don't even know exactly when he was born. It was sometime between 1831 and 1837. That's a fairly wide range. This is ironic, in a sense, because the later part of his life is very well documented. Uh, he's actually the first Ethiopian emperor of whom we have an actual photograph. Well, Casamarca, this young man from a distant branch of the Solomonic line, was appointed by Tawodros as a junior governor, under one of his older brothers. This happened in 1864. 
and it's the first time we hear of him. Right at this point, he would be, depending on when he was born, somewhere between 27 and 33 years old. And we're not sure why, but almost immediately upon receiving this junior governorship, Casamurca rebels against Tawodros. He may have been upset about only being a junior governor, or he may have received a plea for help from a bishop who Tawodros was holding prisoner. It's not quite clear, but you know this was, at the time, one of the many rebellions happening under Tawodros. And at first, it's a very small rebellion. Casa and his followers must hide out in the eastern lowlands. He finds refuge with a local Muslim chieftain and ends up marrying the chieftain's daughter after she converts to Christianity. And uh, he's able to win the support of many of the local people in that region. And uh, Kasa is successful in several battles. And over the next four years, by 1868, uh, he has become the king of Tigra. That's the region roughly between Lake Tana and the Red Sea. And in 1868, Napier actually asks his permission to cross the territory to Magdala. And, well, Casamurca agrees and lets him pass and even gives Napier access to local markets so he can trade for goods for his troops. And his only condition is that after their business is done, the British leave the country. And Napier is true to his word and leaves the country. And in return for Casamurca's help, gifts him with a battery of artillery and a battery of mortars, uh, along with some smooth more muskets, enough to equip an entire regiment. Despite Casamurca's power in this region of Tigra, like we said, upon Tawodros' death, Tekli Georgis becomes emperor. And disputes almost immediately break out over his rule, and the most important one of these disputes is that Casamurca refuses to accept the bishop whom Tekli Georgis had accepted from Alexandria to be the new abuna, right? The chief bishop of the Ethiopian church. This man had been appointed by the patriarch of Alexandria, and Casamurca didn't like him. It's not clear whether this was a sincere objection or whether it was a pretext to continue in rebellion, but regardless, that was Casamurca's position, and both sides would remain at a stalemate for the next three years until 1871. In that year, Casamurca's troops would meet Tekli Georgis's troops in battle near the city of Adwa. Tekli Georgis's troops outnumber Casamurca's by five to one, uh, about 60,000 to 12,000, roughly. But Casamurca has a couple advantages. He has more and better artillery. His troops are better armed, right? He's got all that weaponry from Sir Napier. And finally, uh, his troops are better drilled, and Casamurca is easily victorious, Tekli Georgis is exiled and 
will die within the next two years. This Battle of Adwa probably deserves to be remembered more, but it would soon be overshadowed by another Battle of Adwa. That's a little bit later on, though. Casamirca is crowned in January of 1872 by the very bishop to whom he had objected. And when this bishop crowns him, he takes the imperial name Johannes IV, and he uses the title King of Zion, Nagusa Nagast, which means King of Kings of Ethiopia. And Johannes turns his attention to religious matters. He calls a council of the Ethiopian church to work out some doctrinal disputes. See, while all of this fighting has been going on, the different regions of Ethiopia have developed some of their own religious traditions, and Johannes wants to reunify the Ethiopian church. There are differences at that time in religious practice and rituals from one region to another. And there are also some doctrinal differences starting to appear, and Johannes wants those solved. And he does this in a rather novel way. He first lets all of the various prelates spend an entire day just debating each other. Then he pulls out a ruling he has from the Patriarch of Alexandria, reads off that ruling, and declares that the Patriarch's word on this matter is law. And then he leaves. Not only does he work to unify Ethiopia religiously, he tries to unify the country politically after this really two centuries of civil war. He tours the entire country. He keeps a mobile capital, like the earlier emperors. He lives in a tent and travels around from place to place as needed. And as he's touring the country, no matter where he goes, wherever he appoints governors, instead of appointing people who are necessarily well-connected with the royal family or uh, otherwise connected within the court, he appoints local nobles. He wants people to feel as if their governors have some skin in the game in local matters. And he does this in many cases even with nobles who were his enemies earlier on during the Civil War. And Johannes would not face any major rebellions during this time, as a matter of fact, he would not even need to establish an official capital until the 1880s. He spent over ten years traveling around in his tent. That is not to say that Johannes had peace this entire time, though. Because while he may not have to deal with civil war, in 1874 he faces war with Egypt. The Egyptian Khedive, which is a title that is the viceroy of the Ottoman Empire in charge of Egypt, the Khedive wants to conquer the entire Nile River basin. He has actually been quite successful conquering down the White Nile. The 
western branch of the Nile. Now he is going to work on conquering his way down the Blue Nile, and that means invading Ethiopia. But he's not just going to march his army up the Nile River basin. Instead, he is going to land his army in a port city. The Egyptians actually control a port city, a city called Massawa, which is in modern-day Eritrea, and they're able to assemble an army there. Uh, and the Khedive's army consists of quite the motley crew. Uh, he hires officers from all over the world. Uh, many of the officers are actually Americans, both Union and Confederate, who had served in the Civil War. Uh, one of the overall commanders is Danish, and uh, another of the senior commanders was actually a former officer in the Swiss Guard. The Ethiopians have foreign help as well. Uh, British adventurer John Kirkham is serving as an advisor. But despite the presence of a British advisor, Johannes has to be very careful. You see, the British have just built the Suez Canal a few years earlier. That is the canal in Egypt that connects the Mediterranean with the Red Sea. This was an expensive undertaking, and it's a strategically vital canal. Right? It provides a much shorter travel distance between Great Britain and India than going all the way around Africa. The British really have a lot of interest in keeping the Egyptians happy. And so Johannes is concerned that if he looks like he's the aggressor in any way, the British might use that as an excuse to side with the Egyptians and send in their own troops against him. So Johannes retreats many miles inland into Ethiopia to avoid any possibility that it looks like he's the aggressor here. He wants the Khedive to strike out of his port city, out of Massawa, and unambiguously invade Ethiopia. That's how this war is going to start. And once the Egyptians do penetrate far enough into Ethiopia that even the British have to admit that the Khedive is the aggressor here, well, that's when Johannes strikes back. He waits until the Egyptian force is marching through a narrow valley. And on November 16, 1875, as the Egyptian force is marching through this area, Johannes's troops attack from both sides, from hiding places in the hills, and charge down into this valley, and they have the Egyptians completely surrounded. Over... 2,000 of the 4,000 Egyptian troops are killed, and every last one of their artillery pieces is captured. At this point, you might expect the Khedive to call it a day, but he has actually borrowed a lot of money from European backers to fund this invasion, and... Rather than admit failure, he decides he's going to give it another go, so he puts together yet another invasion force, this time a larger one, 
uh, which attacks the next year. Uh, this force is led by a general named Ratib Pasha, and there is an Ottoman prince, Prince Hassan, as second in command. And this one is based out of an actual fort. Uh, the strike force is based in Fort Gura. This is a fort in coastal Eritrea. And upon the assembling of this force, Johannes does not again wait for the Egyptians to invade. He moves his army to attack them in their fort right away. And Johannes is at the head of a fairly large army. He's leading roughly 50,000 men. Now, many of them, at least a few thousand, are armed with modern firearms. He has artillery. But the bulk of them at this time are still spearmen. By contrast, the entire 13,000-man Egyptian force is armed with the latest Remington rifles. They also have the latest and greatest Krupp artillery made in Germany. And on March 7, 1875, as Emperor Johannes's army is moving in, Ratib Pasha orders a force of 5,000 men to sally out of Fort Gura and intercept the Ethiopian army. This force is quickly surrounded by Johannes and the men are all captured, and Ratib Pasha then prepares for defense. He has a second fort constructed inside the main one. And believe it or not, it's actually made from stale bread loaves, because that's what they had. And the next day, March 8, 1875, the Ethiopians assault the fort. And the following account is taken from an American officer, a former Confederate named W.W. Loring, from his memoir, A Confederate Soldier in Egypt. As you might expect from such a source, some of the following is mildly racist. But we deal with the sources we have. And this is what Loring has to say in his account as he stood with the Egyptian defenders. He says, quote, It was not long before the Abyssinians, with sabers and lances and shields covered in barbaric splendor with brass and silver, were seen glittering in the morning sun. They looked as they stood in masses, as one might fancy the phalanx of Alexander the Great, the king in his chema, the princes and priests in their kuaris, and the soldier in his tob, each resembling the Robin toga, with red stripes through its center. These folded around them, or gracefully fluttering in the morning breeze, gave them the air of the military civilization of an ancient day. Confident in his numbers, King John, that's Johannes, King John began forming upon the hills and slopes immediately on our front, and in the gorges that came out of the hills. From his movements, it was expected that his many thousands would be at once pushed upon the fort in the attempt to end the matter in a single assault. It was an imposing sight, one of the most curious and striking that could be witnessed. I certainly never was more interested in a picture. 
The Egyptians knew that they had no quarter to expect, and what they believed to be a deadly fight soon to begin. In this feeling of the command lay the hope of successful defense. Knowing the strength of the fort, and having a large number of newly educated young officers, there was confidence that it could resist attack if the men stood faithfully to their work, armed as they were with Remington breechloaders and with Krupp steel guns glittering on the works. Osman Bey Naguib, the bravest Egyptian in the army, was in command of the fort. With the entire staff, I stood at the point of danger until the last gun was fired. The king began by throwing around the fort a line of skirmishers who, covered by the mimosa trees and shrubbery, poured into it an incessant fire. A large body was then detached and approached under cover of some old breastworks, carelessly left on our right flank, though the dread warning of the day before ought to have induced their removal. Their boldest men gaining this position, a deadly assault was made upon the angle next to it, looking to the southeast. A four-gun battery was here to defend it. Soon the fight began in earnest. The battery mentioned opened, and those along the line chimed in, which, with the discharge of the Remingtons, made it appear something like a fight in reality. The young artillerymen fell fast and thick at the guns at this angle, it being the point where the attack was fiercest, but others moved up rapidly to take their places. It was near here that my aide-de-camp, Ahmed Effendi, a gallant young officer, was killed. On looking around for Ratib, that's, remember, the overall commander, he was found in his bread fort, and being told of the determined attack was advised to come to the post of danger. He took so long a time to light his cigarette that he was left again in his place of security. The Krupp guns playing into the dense masses on the slope of the hills and tearing through their ranks caused them to sway and surge, and very soon a shot dismounted the only gun the Abyssinians had, which was doing us considerable harm. Yelling and brandishing their shining shields and weapons over their heads, the Abyssinians on the sides of the hills were with shout and song urging their assaulting party to leap the parapet while they stood, to all appearances, ready to rush madly on at any moment. Upon seeing their men approach with their steady fire within thirty or forty feet of us, they sounded applause with a loud shout, and their instruments played notes of victory. At this stage, the scene on the hillsides, in the valley, and in the fort was picturesque and exciting, a tableau of interest only to be found in the northeast corner of Africa. After several futile attacks, those of the enemy in our immediate front gave way. When they had fled a considerable distance, running as though they had abandoned the fight, a sortie was made from the fort, the Krupp guns still continuing to pour well-directed shots into the enemy on the slopes of the hills, and those too showed signs of weakening. The scattered throngs in the valley around us, seeing the discomfiture of their assaulting party, fled precipitously. Those on the hills catching the excitement, music and shouting ceased, and King John and his army took to their heels. Unquote. But even as the last shots were fired and the fighting ended for the night, much of the cruelty and the brutality was just about to begin. In his account, Loring continues, quote, As soon as the Abyssinians had disappeared from the hills, the Egyptians, officers and men, now that all danger was past, rushed out of the fort, and at once showed their prowess by killing the wounded of the brave Abyssinians, mutilating the dead, 
cutting off their hands and feet and scattering them about. To make the scene more horrible, they threw the dead bodies upon dry brush nearby and set fire to it. Others had straw placed upon their faces and fired. The fire blazing without consuming left a more than ghastly sight. As soon as this came to my knowledge, I hastened to Ratib Pasha and urged him to stop such devilish work, but I found him unequal to the occasion. The prince, who was near, hearing my conversation with Ratib, for the facts just then came to my knowledge, joined in the conversation. The inhumanity of the scene was described, and at the same time I reminded him that King John had nearly one thousand Egyptian prisoners, naked and bound hand and foot, in his camp not two miles off. That as the great outrage had already been committed of killing the wounded, the only thing to be done now was to bury the dead so deep that the Abyssinians could not find one of them when they came to seek their wounded in the coming night, as they certainly would do, being a brave race. That, as Ratib kept out neither pickets nor guards, the enemy could come with impunity, and it was folly to aggravate instincts that were already savage enough. That on their coming under the cover of darkness and finding their dead so horribly mutilated, just as certain as the sun rose the next day, every Egyptian they had in their camp would be murdered, and that Ratib Pasha would be held responsible for it. The prince did his best to second my efforts, but the commander did not take energetic steps. It is due Prince Hassan to say that he went in person to remedy this terrible wrong. The Egyptians did not succeed in burying the dead, and in many instances a ghastly and hideous spectacle was left for the Abyssinians to look upon. The next day, the hills resounded with the discharge of firearms and the cry of the unfortunate Egyptians who were prisoners in their power. It was the horrible cry of over six hundred officers and men who were shot down and lanced in cold blood in the camp of the enemy, which had caused the ominous noise. Dr. Johnson, an American, and Major Dorholz, a Swiss who were naked and bound in this camp, were saved because they were white and Christians. More important still, they were thought to be Englishmen. Unquote. Regardless of the outcome of this particular clash at the Battle of Gura, the Egyptians are surrounded and hopelessly outnumbered. Johannes and his troops are also enraged, and the Egyptians would never penetrate further into Ethiopia. Now, the two sides would remain at odds, for the next six years, they would technically be at war until 1884. At that time, a treaty would be signed called the Hewitt Treaty uh, between Ethiopia and Egypt, and it was brokered by the British. And in the treaty, the city of Massawa was transferred from Egyptian control to Ethiopian. And the treaty also provided for the exchange of prisoners from the war and establishes Britain as the arbiter of last resort if there are any disputes. Part of the reason this is possible is because Egypt is now, at this point, a de facto British protectorate. The situation is complicated. Uh, technically, it's also part of the Ottoman Empire, but Egypt has been de facto independent for years. We had the Khedive down here conducting his own foreign policy, for example, uh, launching an invasion, getting loans from the Europeans to do that kind of thing. That's 
a considerable degree of independence, and that it has been Egypt's experience under the Ottomans. Now they are coming under the British sway, and that is in large part why this treaty, the Hewitt Treaty, was signed. Well, to add to that confusing brew, at this time in 1884, there was a Muslim uprising going on in the Sudan, which was part of British Egypt. And there were a number of British and Egyptian troops who were trapped in the Sudan, and they needed to evacuate through Ethiopia, and uh, King Johannes allows the British and Egyptian troops to evacuate to the sea through Ethiopia. He's a good neighbor, after all, and they are now at peace. Well, Unfortunately, this puts Johannes at war with the Sudanese rebels to his north, and he has to deal with them. And while his army is off in the north, defeating the Sudanese rebels, in the year 1885, Italy takes advantage of the situation and seizes the port of Massawa. That's right, the port of Massawa was back in Ethiopian hands for less than a year before going to the Italians. And before Johannes can even fully deal with these Sudanese rebels, rebellions break out back in Ethiopia. So now he has to take his army back into Ethiopia to put down a handful of local rebellions. This takes him four years. In the meantime... Between 1885 and 1889, while he's dealing with these rebellions, Italy is slowly expanding its control of the coast outside of Misawa, and Sudanese fighters are wreaking havoc in the north of Ethiopia. In 1889, Johannes finally has all of his local rebellions sorted out, and he's ready to go back north and defeat this Sudanese rebellion once and for all. He attacks with an army of 120,000 men. This is an overwhelming force. We're not sure how many Sudanese rebels there were, but they were quickly routed. However, Johannes seems to have been overconfident. He rode way out in front of his troops on his horse, and well within the range of the retreating enemy. And at that point, he is shot, and he falls off his horse, and he's taken back to his tent where he dies later. And to make things worse, at that point, the army of 120,000 men, well, most of the army just flees without a king, they have no reason to remain in the field. So what should have been a crushing victory becomes a defeat. Now a few loyal bodyguards remain, including one of Johannes's uncles. They try to return his body to Ethiopia, but some of the rebels catch up to them and they are killed to the last man. Johannes IV's body is mutilated and his head is displayed on a spike at the Sudanese capital of Omdurman. Now at this point in time, in 1889, all African countries are in a precarious position. See, 
the world has gone into a prolonged economic recession. This started in 1873 with a stock market panic, and uh, it lasted by some accounts until 1896. Depends how you measure exactly when the recession started and ended. And it had major impacts throughout the world. Uh, The British Empire in particular was seeing her industrial lead vanish over her European rivals. And between 1873 and 1879 alone, uh, 10 U.S. states went bankrupt. This was a global crisis. And one way for European countries to counteract this slowdown or contraction of their economies was to gain new territory. If you could grab a few colonies, well, even if your economy wasn't growing at home, you'd have more natural resources, you'd have local people entering your labor market, you would have all kinds of advantages. How are you going to get new territory? At this point in time, the easiest territory to take would be territory in Africa, and that is what would happen. Where we are in our story in 1889, there are a handful of European colonies in Africa. Roughly 10% of Africa is colonized. That's a lot of area, but that's nowhere near the entire continent. Between 1890 and the outbreak of World War I, that small amount of European control would spread to cover 90% of the continent. This explosion of colonization uh, is what we now call the Scramble for Africa. And during the Scramble for Africa, the French would take most of West Africa, Uh, The British would take most of the East and the South. Uh, Spain and Portugal still maintained some old coastal colonies. Belgium had the Belgian Congo. One of the greatest atrocities in human history, many would say, is the treatment of the Congolese people under the Belgian rule. And even Germany has some colonies, but... The main players here are the most powerful countries, the French and the British. Germany is, after all, a very young country at this time, also has a fairly small navy, so she has fewer colonies, and Italy has also just recently been united. Italy had only become a country 18 years earlier, in 1871. If Italy were a country, it would have barely been old enough to vote at this time. Well, when you're in that situation and you're competing with the British Empire and the French Empire, you're not going to get your first or even your second choice of territory to colonize. You're going to have to take the territory that's left over. That's either going to mean territory without a lot of useful resources or it's going to mean a territory that's a little bit harder to colonize, like, for example, Ethiopia. Well, defending Ethiopia from this particular threat 
would be up to her next emperor, a man named Menelik II. Menelik was not a descendant of Johannes. He was part of the male line of the Solomonic dynasty, while Johannes had descended from the female line. Menelik had actually once upon a time been imprisoned by Toodros at Magdala. He was one of the folks who was lucky enough not to be killed after being one of Toodros's prisoners, most likely because he married one of Toodros's daughters. And Menelik was actually not Johannes's choice for his successor. On his deathbed, Johannes had appointed his nephew as emperor. But More or less, as soon as he died, the Ethiopian nobles quickly rallied around Menelik instead, and Menelik is declared emperor on November 3rd, 1889, a mere nine months after Johannes' death. And a few months later, this new king would sign a controversial treaty. This treaty, called the Treaty of Wichale, was signed on May 2nd, 1889. And it was presented to Menelik by the Italian ambassador as an attempt to compensate Ethiopia for the port cities that were now controlled by Italy. Uh, Essentially, the treaty would allow Italy to maintain full legal control of those port cities, and in exchange, they would give the Ethiopians money and guns. Sounds like a pretty good deal if you're the Ethiopians, but the text of the treaty is different in both languages. Now, there were a number of clauses that are fairly standard, that are non-controversial, things like an extradition agreement for criminals... But uh, the controversial part of the treaty is Article 17. And this is the part that is different in both versions. See, in the Amharic version, that's the Ethiopian language, in the Amharic version that Menelik II signs, the treaty says... His Majesty the King of Kings of Ethiopia can use the government of His Majesty the King of Italy for all treatments that did business with other powers or governments. Okay. Seems interesting, I guess, right? Okay, the King of Italy is saying that he's willing to mediate for the Ethiopians if they need help with foreign policy. Well, that sounds fine, right? Except... In the Italian version, the treaty states that His Majesty the King of Kings must use the government of His Majesty the King of Italy for all treatments that did business with other powers or governments. In other words, it's not an offer, it's a demand. It says that Italy will now be in charge of Ethiopia's foreign policy. Sounds kind of like this treaty makes Ethiopia into an Italian colony, doesn't it? Now, the Italians claimed that this was just a misunderstanding and that they had not intended to deceive Menelik. He simply misunderstood what he was signing. But Menelik justifiably feels betrayed. Now, 
Was this just an honest mistake? Was it fraud? Doesn't really matter. See, Menelik II is not going to let his country be colonized. If the Italians want to take Ethiopia, they'll have to take it by force. Would Ethiopia remain independent? Would she perhaps fulfill the prophecy from the Kebra Nagast that she would surpass the glory of Rome? Or would she be colonized like the rest of Africa? We'll find out in the conclusion of Heirs to the Lost Ark. Thanks for sticking around, folks. As promised, after this particular episode, I do have a special message, and that message is that I am launching a Patreon account. That's right, if you love relevant history, you can support my podcast by sending me a few bucks every month. Now, right now, I don't have any tiers set up. I don't have any special rewards. I'm hoping for somebody to send me a message saying, hey, here's what I'd like, but if that doesn't happen, here's kind of what I'm thinking. Anybody who starts by subscribing at $5, whenever I do introduce tiers, you'll get a free upgrade to whatever the next tier is. So say uh, all patrons get access to some kind of special chat, which I haven't developed yet, but say that happens. Well, you'd get access to that, but say there's like a $10 tier where you get a free t-shirt or something. Well, if you subscribe now, then you will get whatever that second tier reward ends up being in the future. I realize this is a dubious proposition, but if you do like what you hear and you want to support more of what you're hearing, consider subscribing. Uh, you can do that at patreon.com slash Podcast. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast. Or just go to Patreon and search for Dan Toller, T-O-L-E-R, and you'll find it. And if you don't want to, you know, send me money every month, geez, that's fine. Just subscribe to the show. You can subscribe anywhere that you already listen to your favorite podcasts. Relevant History is available on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. It's also available on Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Pandora, Deezer, Stitcher, Audible, Player FM, and several others which I'm sure I have forgotten to mention. But if you have a favorite podcast app, chances are it's on there. If you don't like podcast apps, don't worry. The show is also on YouTube at Relevant History. That's R-E-L-E-V-A-N-T History. You'll see the same logo you see for the podcast. It is very easy to find. And, you know, if you have any ideas or thoughts about the show or criticism, or you have a suggestion for a future topic, why not shoot me a line? 
you can reach me on Twitter at Dan Toller Podcast. That's Dan T O L E R Podcast. Or alternatively, you could find me on Facebook at guess what? Dan Toller. Not Dan Toller Podcast. It's just Dan Toller on Facebook. And if you just want to get everything straight from the horse's mouth, go on to dantollerpodcast.com. That's Dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. And you'll see all my episodes, all my subscription links, and my blog, which may or may not get updated eventually at some point in the future. Finally... I can also be reached at Dan Toller Podcast. That's Dan T O L E R Podcast at gmail.com. Always happy to hear from you, and thanks for listening.